0: Municipally
1: goes to school. This week, we're joined by Edmonton Public School Board Chair, Tricia Estabrooks. We'll talk about the intersection of city plan and the school board, as well as the struggles of running a public school board in 2022. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're
0: Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 174. I can think of many times in the past year, specifically Julie Cusick, the uh, trustee from Ward F, where people have said, you need to talk about the school board. You need to have a school board trustee on. We did it, Mac. We did it. We are listening to you, dear listener. So your feedback is valued to us and not just because it was convenient for us at this particular point in time. On to the rapid fire. Edmontonians can sign up for their Knack or Tang bucks to be doled out this fall in an effort called participatory budgeting. The two councillors have set aside 25000 of their office budgets each for a Ralph Klein-inspired bribe fund. Councillor Knack, who has won campaigns via effort and door-knocking in the past, was very excited, saying, We pay the money and, uh, and we go from there. With
1: Councillor Tang adding,
0: We want it to be quick. We want it to be easy.
1: A group of property owners are banding together to sell their 10-lot block as one. The block of homes near the top of Scona Hill and Saskatchewan Drive is listed for $12.5 million. Said the realtor for the sale, quote, This sale represents a unique opportunity for a made-in-Edmonton innovative solution and unique zoning. By demolishing the 10 lots and building just one building, we can help create a new zoning class, what I'm calling the Super Single Family Zoning. Finally, the little guy in Edmonton can fight back against Iverson and Trudeau's nefarious plan to squash us all into tiny container houses like rats. We're going to, quite literally, decimate our infill goals.
0: With the new Alberta curriculum taking effect this September, elementary schools across the province have been ordered to remove and destroy all copies of the book, The Tortoise and the Hare, from their libraries to avoid teaching critical race theory. That's it, you've done it, Troy. You're never going to write a better joke. No, I got to retire on top. Uh, sorry, Stephen, we're not retiring the rapid fire segment.
1: Never. <laughs> Over my dead body. Speaking municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by the Northwest Fest International Documentary Festival, running in cinema from May 6th to the 14th and online from May 5th to the 15th. Northwest Fest is thrilled to finally be able to bring the festival back to Metro Cinema this year, with an outstanding lineup of some of the year's best docs and a few fun surprises. This year's festival is a hybrid affair, with over 20 films screening at Metro Cinema, including the acclaimed Nick Cave music documentary This Much I Know To Be True, along with dozens of feature and short films screening online. Award-winning filmmaker Alexandre Ophelipe will also be in town to present his Filmmaking Masterclass. This event will be open to the public and is an absolute must for anyone who's ever dreamed of making their own film. You can check out the full Northwest Fest film lineup and purchase all access passes or single tickets at northwestfest.ca. Our first guest and
0: only guest uh, joining us on the podcast this week is a former podcaster herself. Trisha Estabrooks is the current board chair of Edmonton Public School Boards. And she's here to talk to us about the intersection of the city of Edmonton, the municipality and, of course, the province. That is the Edmonton Public School Board. Welcome to the podcast, Trisha.
2: Great to be on the podcast. First time for me. So thanks for having me on.
0: At this point, we're a full two years into the pandemic. Yeah, we're jumping straight into COVID-19.
2: Let's do it. Yeah.
0: How are you feeling? Um, How are Edmonton schools doing? Does the exhaustion that I feel apply to basically every facet of the school system as well?
2: (laughs) You know, I've affectionately, yes, I think everyone's tired to to jump right into that, Troy. You know, I think I affectionately have called it the COVID coaster because that's what it's felt like, I think, for a lot of parents and staff and certainly for students. Certainly when we were in the heart of the pandemic, where we had situations where, you know, on a weekly basis, we were sending hundreds of kids home because of the quick rise of COVID cases in our schools. Yeah, it's been a long two years and I think as you mentioned, it's been tough on everyone. But I really feel for families, you know, families of young kids, families, I think about friends of mine who still can't get their kids under five vaccinated, for example. Mm -hmm. It's been exhausting. um, And, you know, (laughs) I'm reminded that pandemics are political. It's been tough to navigate with this provincial government as well.
1: As if you didn't have enough political things to worry about already.
2: (laughs) School board, trusteeship is a is a political job right um whether we like it or not
0: there were several points uh during the previous five waves of pandemic where you know there, we heard about schools being closed and sub-lists being exhausted, staff in and out, and some Mm -hmm. schools being unable to staff. What's our current status report looking like, say as a percent capacity of the school's operational capacity? Are we missing a lot of teachers right now due to sickness? Are we relatively functioning? Are most people's classes operating day to day. What's the what's the status report there?
2: It's really leveled out. What really mitigated Edmonton Public in the past, having to transition either entire schools or, you know, in some cases, really pushing the province to move the whole division online, was, like you said, we didn't have substitute teachers. We literally did not have the staff to keep our schools open. And so that's a safety issue, first and foremost. Right now, you can go on epsb.ca and you can see, and I'm really pleased that our division, in the absence of the government not sharing um, COVID case data uh, with us, we are collecting it. So it's self-reported cases. And so parents still every day, and this has been going on since after Christmas break, can go on to epsb.ca, you can even narrow down and look at your individual kid's school to see what the self-reported cases of COVID are in that school. And also how many kids are absent because sometimes it may not be COVID or, you know, right, like we know right now, you know, my, my son, for example, has um, a headache and sniffles and, um, and a sore throat. And so he's tested negative for COVID, but who's to say it very well, maybe COVID. Um, as we enter what looks like a very strong sixth wave. So the situation right now is our staffing levels have really stabilized. You know, the illness in our schools that we're seeing would be typical of an illness in a quote-unquote regular year. So things have calmed down, but um, I don't think anyone thinks that we're out of the woods yet. Like, I think we're all just kind of holding our breath still, to be honest. It's hard to live in that sort of perpetual state of sort of like, (gasps) what's next, right? And I don't think that's unique to schools or families or kids or staff or students either, right?
1: Well, the division has made some efforts to think about, you know, the pandemic or COVID or this kind of thing being around longer. I'm thinking of you know, millions of dollars for the installation of air filtration systems. Are there other things that are underway that are geared toward helping us live with COVID 19, as the leaders like to say?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's your phrase, not mine, or Hinshaw's phrase, yes, right? To, yes. To quote her. I guess to go big, first of all, like, I really hope we can get to a point and I think we're slowly getting there, like some of the conversations I have with leaders in our division, as well as conversations that I have when I attend school council meetings is the question, and I think it's a hopeful question. And I think that's maybe the heart of your question, like, how do we transition to this place of like, what have we learned? what are we going to carry on with? What worked? What didn't work? And so like I think about online learning, there were some kids during this pandemic, and there's still some kids who really thrive in an online learning environment. And so I know the division is making efforts to accommodate families who want to continue with online learning. It won't look the same as it did this past year. But still, you know, that's a good idea. That's something that worked for kids that connected kids in a way that they were successful in their learning. So I think that's Example. I'm glad you mentioned HEPA filters. We fought hard for that. You know, it's for it's strange in a way. Like we gotta fight to use our surplus dollars. Like, I love being a school board trustee. I love serving as board chair for a great new board of trustees. But there are some frustrating parts of the job and having to ask permission for something as simple as accessing 6 million bucks for something that we thought was so imperative. In the end, it, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't want to get all political about this because in the end, the minister said, yes, use the money. Yeah. But we had to wait weeks for that. And I just thought, oh, this is so frustrating. This is, this is money that is surplus. Plus it belongs to, you know, EPSB, it's tax dollars, like we know how to spend our money, right? Um, and a $1.2 billion organization, right? So anyway, uh, the other thing we've been pushing for is vaccination clinics in our schools. And, you know, I hope we really can have a good chat about this idea of schools as community hubs, because I think there's so many cool intersections with that city plan and working with the current city council, who I know a lot of councillors believe strongly in creating 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 those great community hubs. So we just thought, hey, let's put vaccination clinics in our schools. This is a great opportunity, right? Like, we've been pushing for that no traction yet. Um, And frankly, I don't think we're going to see it at this point from the provincial government. So you know, I think there's small things that um, we've been pushing for and things that we'll continue to look at as we as we continue to weather this pandemic, right?
0: (laughs) I think you can appreciate my frustration here in that you just gave us nine different conversation threads that I wanna dig into. Oh, and I'm gonna choose
2: sorry. I'm sorry. I'm a that ba- as a former <laughs> journalist, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Gotta choose one and the one that I'm gonna go through first is you had mm. mentioned that you wanted to implement HEPA filters and you had to wait for the minister's approval to use the money that was EPSBs. Take us into yeah. that a little bit. What what is the structure by which money gets distributed in schools, because I thought that we elected school board trustees to do exactly that, to spend the division's money.
2: And you do, like at a high level, certainly part of the job of a school board trustee is to to oversee a budget of $1.2 billion Is is sort of what we're looking at for this year. But you know, a couple of years ago the current minister of education put a rule in place which basically said school boards who want to access their reserve dollars or their surplus dollars need to get permission from the minister. And so that's that's the reasoning for for that one. You know, kudos, full kudos to to parents. There were, you know, I received dozens of emails, well-informed emails. Like there is nothing better than a well-informed, well-researched email. It's a craft. And I have to say, the parents who were pushing so hard to install HEPA filters in all Edmonton public classrooms, every learning space in the division, including music rooms, art rooms, for example, gymnasiums have HEPA filters in them. And that's in, I I can, I attribute it directly to parents who wrote thoughtful, well-researched, well-crafted emails, and then came and presented at public board. That's why we have the HEPA filters in place. Full kudos to them.
1: Well, I'm going to pick up on a different thread you mentioned. This idea of vaccination clinics within the schools, to me, speaks to this idea of schools as community hubs, as a really core part of the city plan, right? And and this idea of districts and things like that. So as you are, you know, uh, with your board thinking about planning, we're going to talk about your facilities plan and building schools and things like that. You know, what are the intersections you see between city plan, this Big high level document for the kind of Edmonton we want to build for the next million people and the work that you do at the public school board.
2: So there's so many intersections like there's a subheading in that report around a community of communities. Mm. I mean, you could take that phrase and you could apply it to a school division like Edmonton public you know, when I ran for the second time to serve as a school board trustee, I ran my campaign on the idea that schools are the hearts of our communities. Schools are the hubs of our communities. And there's so much strength in the city plan around this idea of, like you mentioned, these 15 minute neighborhoods, these 15 minute districts, schools are specifically mentioned. You know, one example that i like to point to, and I've used it in conversations with government and certainly when, um, you know, the the school board and Mayor Sohi and I've had a few opportunities to talk as have the whole council and the whole board of trustees, which has been really good conversation. We come back to Dr. Ann Anderson. I don't know if you two are familiar with the new high school um, and the amazing fitness center and the gym and there's extra community space like that is the model in my idea. Right. So, you know, you talk about an efficient use of taxpayer dollars. You talk about creating a community. Community hub. That some of the challenges are, though, the ways in which, like a rec center in our city, is funded, versus the timing and the way that our schools are funded. It's hard to align the two. And so, you know, Tim Cartmel and uh, current vice chair of our board, Nathan Ipp, they worked really hard to make Doctor Ann Anderson happen. And. It's a great example of a a community hub. The other piece, so that's one piece. Second piece, and then feel free to interrupt me because, like I said, I could talk at length about this, is this idea of 50%, I believe, of new units are infill, right? So I live in a mature community. You know, I can tell you that you look at our utilization rates in our schools and our mature communities. And they pale in comparison to some schools in the Southeast or the Southwest or the Northeast, like growing parts of our city. And it's because their houses aren't affordable. (laughs) Like, it's really tough. And you know, you guys have talked about this in previous podcasts, like this idea that we we build, it's the it's the type of infill that we're building has to change, right? Like we want to invest in our mature communities, I want to invest in our mature community schools. And so that conversation about what kind of infill we build, where we build it can really help support some of our neighborhood mature community schools, which, some of them, I'm not saying they're empty, like no schools are going to close here at Edmonton Public Schools anytime soon, but they need some rejuvenation. And so when I look at that 50% target, infill, mature communities, there's a lot of good synergy there that I think could line up with what the school board's thinking as well.
1: I like the example of uh, Dr. Anne Anderson, you know, that high school, it's a great example, but it's closer to Leduc than it is to me <laughs> in the center of Edmonton. How do we bring some of those kinds of amenities and things into core neighborhoods to support that infill development that we're hoping to see? I mean, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing, right? And perhaps the school board could take the lead on that. No?
2: Well, you know, you look at previous city councils that just kept annexing land, right? Like I I don't want to blame, blame them, but that sort of vision falls to city council. Right. Mm. Um, And so you know, sort of you build it and they will come sort of analogy. Like if there's development and the, the developments continue, continuing, there needs to be a school in that area as well. You know what's interesting? Sometimes, oftentimes, in fact, our yellow buses at Edmonton Public are the first bus route into a new community, we're sometimes there like two years ahead of an ETS bus. Sometimes I picture, like, I wonder if like little grannies or folks who are trying to get to the grocery store, I wonder if they sometimes just try to get on a yellow bus. <laughs> like, I just wonder if they're like standing there going, Hey, can you pick me up?
1: You're <laughs> going back anyway. Yeah. <laughs>
2: no, totally. It's a good question. And yeah, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. I mean, we want to build schools where the kids are. We want to build schools so that kids can walk to school, so kids can ride their bike to school, so kids don't have to be on a bus for an hour both ways, right? Like, we want to build schools to meet kids and families where they're at. And so when the city is building these neighbourhoods that are way on the outskirts of the city, yeah, that does cause problems. But again... That's where families are wanting to move. That's where families, and this is a bigger conversation about, you know, how we grow sustainably as a city and some of the choices that I think Edmontonians are, are making about where they're deciding to live.
0: So you've hit on the uh, active transportation piece, which I'll, pr- I promise I'll get to, but earlier okay, you good. had mentioned... Nathan Epp, who is running for the NDP nomination in Edmonton South or Edmonton Southwest, Casey Maddu's, uh district. Um, yep. If he wins and wins the subsequent election, he will obviously resign his position on the Edmonton Public School Board. Will you hold a by-election at that case? Because there is precedent in Edmonton for simply leaving a school board seat vacant.
2: I mean, I'm one of nine trustees. And if if Nathan is successful, I'd be one of eight my preference would be yes. You know, there's enough time left in our term that I certainly would want residents in in Ward I to be well represented. It's a it's the fastest growing area of city, and so I would want families and constituents to be well represented. So, I mean, it's interesting. Edmonton Catholic decided not to hold a by election, right, for um former for Carlos Smiley. Carla Smiley. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. mean, I think you're referencing trustee Johnner. And so, you know, the decision was made as a board of trustees that we wouldn't hold a by-election. It was a tough decision because, you know, as someone who believes strongly in in representation. But what it came down to in terms of timing was, you know, once the election was all said and done, that new person was only going to be in the role for, I think, three or four months. And we sort of thought, oh, that's, that's not ideal, right? So, but I think the timing... If, and and, there, and then it's an if, if trustee Yip does get elected, I think the timing would be a bit different than certainly the situation that uh, the previous board was in with former trustee Johnner.
0: Okay. Now we get to the question that everyone on the podcast is salivating for. You mentioned active transportation and walking to schools. Mm-hmm. And now currently in Edmonton, there are schools where you have to enter a lottery to um, walk to your neighborhood school rather than getting bust to a school across the city. To say that it is dire, I think, might actually be a reasonable assessment of the situation. How is Edmonton Public addressing this problem of making neighborhood schools truly for the neighborhood.
2: I think it's a problem that it requires investment from the provincial government. You know, like we every year submit, and this is all sort of connected. So take this conversation anywhere you want. But every year we submit a capital plan. And, you know, if you've been following the news, you'll know that my board and our frustration to be passed over for no new school announcements two years in a row, I think... I think you're right, Troy. I think the word dire is an accurate word to use. I mean, we are the fastest school division, and it it astounds me that again, two years in a row. And you can, your listeners can, you know, read between the lines and jump to their own conclusions on why this might be. But for the fastest growing school division, growing by 3,000 students, so that's the size of like a large high school, like Harry Ainley High School, every year. That means. Quite frankly, the kids are on the bus longer. That means that our class sizes are getting bigger. That means that more schools, and you mentioned Lillian Osborne High School. It's their first high school to go to lottery. That means that all those challenges become much more acute. It means that kids are forced to attend, like you reference, schools farther away from where they live. And so we are really seeing those pressures and those challenges intensify. And so Let's talk solutions. Is that where you want to go? Because I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to harp on this. I don't want parents to hear this and think, oh, there's no hope. Because there's got to be hope, and there's got to be solutions, right? Well,
1: I do want to get to solutions, but I want to follow up quickly. So, since 2010, enrollment in Edmonton Public has gone up by about 25,000 students, and the division has built 31 schools in that time, but none, as you say, in the last couple of years. I think in the plan that was submitted for this provincial budget. Delton, a replacement for Delton, a K-6 school was the number one priority. And I want to ask you about that because the education minister's spokesperson, you know, said, quote, EPSB's number one priority, Delton School, had 69% enrollment and no health and safety concerns. If EPSB was truly concerned about building for growth, they needed to prioritize new schools in growing areas at the top of their amalgamated list, end quote. And hmm. that struck me as interesting because, uh, there's probably a whole lot of other factors that went into this. For one thing, that school I understand was built in 1946, so it's not particularly new. Maybe there are other reasons we might want to replace that. But also, this kind of gets back to that city plan thing, right? Which is that mm-hmm. you know prioritizing schools only in these outer areas is is sort of problematic in terms of helping to direct how the city grows. And I recognize that a lot of the residential growth and, and certainly a lot of the enrollment growth has been around the Hyundai and and, mm-hmm. you know, in the South especially.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: can you take us inside this? What is the disconnect between EPSB and the province with Delton School, for example?
2: Oh, I love this question. Yeah, okay, so Delton... Delton and Spruce, and we've revised our list, heads up, because clearly the province is playing a different game with the capital plan lists, and so we've adjusted our list accordingly because we need a school. That being said... For years, Delton and Spruce Ave, which is another, um, it's a junior high school in the, you know, in the heart of the center of our city, have been on, you know, they've been on our capital plan list for like 13 or 15 years, respectively. And so those schools need an investment. And you hit the nail right on the head when you said, like, our mature community schools need investment as well. And in my mind, a good capital plan should reflect our city. And what I mean by that is a good capital plan should have investments in our mature community schools, and should also be investing in our fast growing neighborhoods in the southeast and the southwest. So our previous plans, you know, under the the former Board of Trustees certainly did reflect that. And, you know, I can tell you, I've been inside Delton school many, many times. And okay, fine, it's not at a high utilization rate. But it doesn't have proper wheelchair access. (laughs) Like, I am sorry, in 2022, we need schools where we can welcome all students into our schools. The gymnasium at Delton is a small, small gymnasium. You know, like we talk about having equitable access to great learning spaces in our schools. And Delton's a great little community school, but it needs a lot of work. It deserved to be on that capital plan list. Unfortunately, you know, the ministry felt that that request shouldn't be funded. And, you know, let me just say, Delton's been on that list for many years, but this government, as well as previous governments, have also chosen to skip over modernizations and go right to new school builds, which they can do that. And we would have happily and, you know, it, what I think was frustrating for us, both for the board and for our administration is it's as if current practices had all of a sudden changed. You know, mm. if the province was really interested in building a new school and incidentally, a new school in Casey Maddo's riding, they could have gone ahead and done that. So it's like the rules of the game were changed and they didn't tell us now. That being said, we did dramatically change our capital plan this year. And now at the top of the list, uh, you see Glen Ridding Heights, which is in the heart of Casey Maddox riding, and and Delton and Spruce Ave, schools that certainly are worthy of investment, um, are now sixth and seventh on our list now.
0: So. so the province isn't the only level of government that you're having conflicts with to uh, get some uh, efficiency and cost savings initiatives done. I can think back in 2014, there was a project to establish a agency to serve both Edmonton public and Edmonton Catholic for transportation, the yellow Uh, buses that would save $2.5 million a year. I can also recall a couple years later, That project being kiboshed and some sort of haphazard, we'll add 15 or 16 routes. That'll maybe save 600 grand and leave $1.9 million on the table. Why is putting kids on a bus with other kids such a hard problem to solve?
2: Have you been talking to former trustee Jans about this? This is one of his favorite topics. no, in all seriousness, yeah, it's it's too bad, you know, looking back, you know, I think Edmonton Public at the time, and I wasn't a trustee at the time that it was called ESTA, E-S-T-A, I wasn't a trustee at the time that that was first floated, but certainly, you know, uh, an integrated, well-coordinated transportation system that serves both Edmonton Catholic and Edmonton Public students did have some merit, um, but, you know, that never came to fruition, since then, it's it's um, the routes that are shared between Edmonton Public and Edmonton Catholic, um, I believe, are up around 30 routes. And so every time we add more routes, the cost savings go up. So I think, you know, speaking to and we'll get a report on this at some point this spring around um, some of the work that transportation has done. I think that they're continuing to find efficiencies um, because let's be honest, like there's lots of places in our city where we have an Edmonton public school right beside an Edmonton Catholic school. And in the past, and I think we've gotten a lot better at it in the past, we'd have two big yellow school buses, each half full, pull up in front of those schools at the same time. And, you know, I think we all agreed that that's not efficient. And so now that's changed. And so, Like I said, I think it's about 30 routes with plans to develop more into the future because, you know, our budget's tight. I know Edmonton Catholics budget's tight and it just it makes sense. Like, let's put kids on buses and let's get them to our schools, regardless of whether they're Catholic or public students.
0: Uh, Speaking of easy changes to make sense, uh, you had mentioned there's a couple places in the city, and I can think of a couple as well, where, you know, there's an Edmonton public school right next to an Edmonton Catholic school. Should those not just be two Edmonton public schools beside each other?
2: Well, Catholics Catholics (laughs) certainly have a right to have... uh, (laughs) have have a have a school that that um that caters to their faith you know in this province um this is an issue that seems to surface every 4 years right it's one of these perennial issues that that continues to come back right now i'm not hearing a lot of appetite to to uh merge the two and i certainly know my my friends and my colleagues, we work quite closely with the Catholic Board and have a really good relationship and try to find ways that we can advocate together, not just on bussing, but on other provincial issues as well. Like no, I mean, they provide a service that a lot of Catholic families in our in our city want to continue to see.
1: But if you but if you joined forces, couldn't you more easily fight the demon of charter schools? <laughs>
2: I think we're doing a pretty good job doing it together right now. Um and I I don't know what's what's lost <laughs> when you join forces, right? Yeah. What's lost? I mean, there's a long history of separate education in this province, and rightly or wrongly, there is a tradition. And I, I don't think it's going away anytime soon, to be honest.
1: Well, quickly on the charter schools, Alberta's gonna spend, I think it's $72 million to expand this. And you've said that you think it's a bad idea, obviously, and then it could lead to a slow erosion of public education in this province. For the listener that maybe doesn't understand how these pieces fit together, what do you mean by that?
2: The longer-term risk really comes, it's also a short-term risk in my mind. It's one and the same. And that is that charter schools do not have to accept everyone. And on the surface, that seems really simple, but just Think about that. Like the strength of public education in my mind is that we are truly accessible and open to everyone, especially public education, Edmonton Public right mm, yeah charters by their very nature you know they they can put in place application requirements for example or standards or testing requirements and so when i talk about the slow erosion of public education what i'm talking about is we are seeing a government that's actively investing in charter schools and so you know, the education budget is, is, is finite right now, unfortunately, even with the price of oil going up, we're not seeing um, an increase in the education budget. And so it's it's the piece of the pie that's being cut into more pieces and to the detriment of public education. And so that's frustrating. It's frustrating to see, you know, like you mentioned, that $72 million capital investment in charter schools. That stings, especially for a division like Edmonton Public that, like I said, we've been talking about was passed over for, for new school builds for two years in a row. And yet we see significant investment going into a charter school here in our city that, again just won't offer the same accessibility to their programming like a large school division like Edmonton Public does. And so, you know, I know that this is of concern, not just to Edmonton Public, but to all metro boards, in particular the two metro boards down in Calgary, and also to rural boards who are slowly starting to see charters um, come into their territory. And you you imagine in a rural community what this means? Like a rural community that, let's say, serves a couple hundred kids, a charter school sets up and they have 100 kids attend their charter school, like there goes a quarter of their school population. Right. How do they remain viable? How do they remain that strong public education system if the charter school is siphoning off those kids? So yeah, I think it's the wrong path we're going down for sure. And we're the only province in the, in the country that, um, that has a charter school system. So I think we're going in the wrong direction on this one completely.
0: I want to just follow up because as a charter school kid myself. Um, oh,
2: tell me more.
0: <laughs> yes, the, I I did go to Hogwarts over in Sherwood Park, a New Horizons charter school. Yeah, but I yeah. do think, like you said, Alberta is the only province in Canada that has a charter school system. And when the charter school system was established, I could see a reason for it. Anyone yeah. could certainly argue that, you know, Edmonton Public could offer these alternative services. But... When we established charter schools, it was a maximum of 15 in the province, and we never came close to the 15 limit because uh, it wasn't being encouraged by the government. I do think what we're seeing now with the provincial government, especially with the additional funding and the removal of the cap, is that charter schools are becoming private schools, but they have public in their name. They're public charter schools. So it gets around the sort of negative connotation of private. If there is demand for these charter schools and there's demand mm-hmm. because these charter schools offer some alternative programming, is this something that Edmonton Public can take away as we need to offer more different and wide programming? Or is this more an ideological move from the government to expand private schooling?
2: I think it's both. Both is the quick, short answer. What I would say is that when charter schools were first set up under Ralph Klein, the idea was, as you said, they would be these, I think there were like, to be almost like these little incubators of cool, innovative thought, like try something, um, see if it works. And then if it worked, share that learning with the public school, right? But that's totally been lost. Like there's no longer any collaboration between a neat, innovative team Teaching idea or learning program or whatever at a charter school with the public system. And so the original intent, it's, it's an experiment that's totally gone awry. I think it is ideological. I would say for a large school division like Edmonton Public, you know, we offer and right now charter schools can duplicate programming that's offered by adjacent boards or boards that they share territory with. So, for example, charter schools in our city, we already offer that programming. So... Edmonton Public has been a has been a dis, dis, district of choice for many many years. I think that's in fact what's helped us. That's what's kept charter schools out of our city. I know for a fact that's what's kept private schools out of our city. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I the education field is one that's continuing to evolve and to grow. And so that initial idea of charters has gone by the wayside. There's not that collaborative learning that happens anymore. And and so, I, yeah, I think it's a failed experiment, and I think the investment towards charters should stop.
1: For the record, Troy, Edmonton Public School kid right here, McNally. <laughs> <laughs> You've said a
0: lot today, Tricia, and we thank you for your time. It's been a joy, but it is noticeable to me that you are the Edmonton Public School board chair and you're the only one on the board that can do an interview like this because EPSB, just like Edmonton Catholic, has a fairly restrictive policy around communication. Trustees are effectively muzzled in terms of media. Availability. Hey, no,
2: that's not fair to say, my friend. Well, <laughs> let's, let's hear
0: the interjection then.
2: So on issues that the board makes a decision on, the board chair speaks, right? But um, if, for example, like Trustee Cusick, Trustee Julie Cusick has a great motion coming up at our board meeting on Tuesday around uh, advocating for adequate funding to support um, Ukrainian refugees or families and kids displaced because of the war in Ukraine. She's done extensive media interviews on that, right? So Trustee brings forward a motion. It's their idea. They speak to it. I... I love to share the load, you know, I, I also like to talk to the media, but it's our board policy. And, you know, maybe you're not wrong, like, you know, when it's a board policy, when it's a something that the board has agreed upon that we have a position on, um, it does fall to the board chair to, to speak to the issue. But individual trustees, I I've never muzzled a trustee You know, I respect the role of trustee too much, and I respect the democratic process, and I respect the fact that trustees need to speak up and speak for their community, so... Um, you know, that's that's what I would say to that. So I don't feel like "muzzled" is the right word to use with all due respect.
0: One of the former trustees, uh, when she declared that she was not running for reelection last year, uh, Bridget Sterling, the former trustee from Ward G, said in a post, quote, boards themselves have subverted the role of elected trustees through the adoption of formal practices that do not allow trustees to speak freely to the public or express dissenting positions without fear of discipline or censure. So at least from one trustee, there is some feeling that perhaps the efficacy of the board and the efficacy of the trustee role as an advocacy role has been muted or neutered in some way. And I've heard many times you've said things like we're advocating to the province and the role of a trustee is to really push because, you know, your taxation power has been removed and your discretionary budget power um, has been removed without ministerial approval. So with the whittling away of trustee roles from the province, it does seem counterintuitive to me that the board would adopt policies that self-regulate even further and further reduce trustee advocacy.
2: I would just reiterate what I've already said, which is there's a board policy around if the board has a position, the board chair speaks to it. Trustees are certainly entitled to speak their opinion, and many do. And, you know, I, I uh, you'd have to, Bridget's entitled to her opinion, and, you know, it sounds like you might need to have her as a guest on your show if you want to get further into exactly what she was referring to there.
0: I suppose just one point of clarification, you mentioned that trustees are freely able to speak, but that's not quite true, is it though? Because in the trustee handbook, one of the, I don't know if you'd call them a regulation in the code of conduct, but it said, following a board decision, trustees will respect the board decision and if asked about it, the decision or issue fairly reflect the discussion and demonstrate support for the board and focus on next steps. And if a trustee cannot live with the decision of the board, they may choose to resign as the honorable option. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: That is fairly chilling language that I find, uh, because it says, if you disagree with the board, you may not speak to it after the board has decided, lest you be forced out of the position. Am I reading that wrong? Because that, as someone who is involved in municipal politics, just last week, uh, Mayor Sohi was on the losing side of a vote about a mosquito spraying operation. But he said in a social media post on Instagram that I personally didn't support the ceasing of spraying, but here's why we voted and I'll work hard in the future. I can't imagine a scenario where we would ask the mayor to resign for making that Instagram post. But that is the requirement on the public school board, no? No.
2: I think you're reading a little too much into it i mean this this code of conduct is reviewed every year and so certainly if if there's colleagues of mine either in the past or current who have a problem with this we would certainly go back and we were would revisit it but to be frank it's it's never been an issue is what's it's what's interesting to me of why this topic's coming up the other thing I'd say is like the governance structure of city council and the governance structure of of a school board or the Edmonton Public School Board is very different. When we would have a discussion on a motion, certainly through the course of debate, um, you know, you would see trustees, you know, disagree or agree and have the opportunity to voice their their opinion. But I can certainly see merit in that once a decision has been reached, this is the decision of the board. And there have certainly been decisions. Oh, my gosh, there's been decisions I've disagreed with that I've then had to speak to and support as the board chair. That being said, trustees still have that flexibility to say, okay, I may not have agreed with this, but the majority of us did. And so it does promote unity. It does promote this idea that, okay, I wasn't with the majority on this, but I can live with this and we're going to move forward together as a team on this one. And so maybe that's like, there is quite a distinct difference between how a city council operates and how a school board operates. And at the heart of it is trying to make decisions that are Best for kids, and quite frankly, ongoing bickering in the news media between members of boards of trustees, and quite frankly, with city councilors too. I don't think serves anyone well, right?
1: <laughs> well, it serves our podcast because it can be quite entertaining from yeah, week to week. Fair but, enough. But fair I enough. hear you. I totally. hear you.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, and 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 I suspect Troy, we're never going to see you run for a school board trustee, given the fact that you you find that that code of conduct policy quite <laughs> offensive.
0: Well, I, I was planning on running for Carla smiley's seat in ward 73 on the catholic hey that's was, uh, the
2: big news in this podcast though. unfortunately
0: no by-election so all right. yeah, you held your right. ground on this issue i'll be less adversarial now no it's a
2: it's a good question i i appreciate the conversation troy for sure
0: we'll we'll close with some questions that we got from twitter that i think are worth asking and almost 100%, probably selection bias because of my Twitter audience, had questions about accessibility at schools for people Mm -hmm. who are not in the almighty car. I know I see this around all schools in my neighborhood. But frankly, at 8.30, at 4 or 3.30, it can be a nightmare around schools with people doing drop-off and pickup. And it can feel unsafe for me as a fully-fledged adult to cross the street because of all the vehicles. Has... EPSB thought about a no driving zone for block around schools, obviously with exceptions for wheelchair users or, you know, specific staff members, or has there been thought to let's put pedestrians and cyclists first to enhance safety around our schools?
2: I think schools do their best to, to mitigate traffic flow. And, you know, I would think at, um, I think about Garneau School, for example, or Oliver School, Those are schools that are located right on a designated bike lane, right? And I think, you know, we're at a pivotal time in our city where more people are getting on bikes, more kids are riding their bikes to school. So, I, you know, I was in a committee meeting the other day and we were talking about this very idea of how do we as a school division find more ways to enhance active transportation and that idea of shutting down a whole street. So that idea has been talked about for sure. We have good partnership with Everactive Schools, which is, you know, a great a great organization driving some of this conversation. And I, you know, you raised the question about safety. Absolutely, it needs to be safe in front of our schools. So I wondered, like, is there, I'd love to see a map that shows, and I know there's maps that show our bike routes in our cities, but like, where are the schools on those routes? And, you know, I think sometimes that helps inform, you know, where families are going to buy a home or where they're going to rent a home. Like, can they bike, can they bike to the school? Can they walk to the school? And so I think Edmonton Public Schools has a real role to play in terms of educating on how we can contribute to more active transportation to our schools because you know we signed up we're one of the we're one of the signatories to the greenhouse gas emissions reductions the corporate climate leaders program at the city of Edmonton we're tracking our greenhouse gas emissions it's all so interconnected and so yeah I think I think we're going to see um, a renewed focus in particular with this board of trustees who care quite um, passionately about finding ways to mitigate mitigate climate change and do our part as a as the largest school division in the city right? I didn't
0: hear a yes in there to we're closing the street in front of the school though.
2: No, I I can't commit to that. No, there's no way I can say, yes, let's do that. Like that's on the surface. It's a really, it's a great idea. I'll say that it's a simple idea, but like all of a sudden just going ahead and closing a street. No, you, we need to consult with parents. We need to talk to staff. We need to, we need to talk to the city. Like this is a, this is a great initiative that requires partnership. This is a great initiative that requires education. And so me coming on your podcast and just saying, yeah, let's close the streets. Like, I can't do that. Like, I don't know.
0: <laughs> Similarly related to active transportation, but I can think of EPSB as a method of signaling certain goals has updated their capital policy. And I'm thinking of things like solar panels and net zero construction on schools. Those yeah. were things that were added to the capital plan because EPSB had certain goals and certain virtues that they wanted to embody, namely climate yeah. change. One thing that I haven't seen that's added to capital plans as a virtue that we need to get included, and one thing that I think is critically missing, is safe bicycle parking. You mentioned that you know many students are choosing to cycle to school, uh, and it's a great, healthy option. helps our mature neighborhoods and helps our city building goals. But once they get to it, I've had several bikes stolen in Edmonton. And I wouldn't wish that on a kid who's going to fifth grade. He's got this cool new bike that's red with flames on it and goes (laughs) super fast in the bike lanes. And he walks out of school and it gets yanked off the racks. Mm. What's EPSB doing to install safe bike parking? And what's the strategy going forward? Because this problem is not going to go away. We do live in Edmonton. Bike theft is a mm-hmm. huge problem here.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. First of all, was your, did you have a red bike with flames on it? I need to know.
0: No? I need to protect my emotions. So no comment on that. Okay.
2: I am very envious of a red bike with flames on it. In all seriousness, though, like we talk about finding ways to get more kids to bike to school. I think it begins with exactly what you've described, which is ensuring that, you know, that new bike or that bike that's dearly loved or that red bike with the flames on it that you don't need to worry about when you come out of school at the end of the day that that bike that that bike's going to be there, right? And so, you know, I know there would be at some of our schools examples of great bike lockups but in some of our schools there are not and i'm i'm aware of a few where parents have been organizing or fundraising or trying to you know figure out a way that there can be a more secure bike lockup spot for the very reason that they are seeing more kids bike to school and they want to encourage more children to ride their bikes and so providing that is certainly one way to do that. It's my understanding that, and I can check on this for you, but I think there was supposed to be and I believe it may still be underway an audit of all bike lockups in all schools within Edmonton Public Schools to see okay, if we really want to address this, how much is it going to cost? Where's the greatest need? What is the best sort of lockup situation? The reality though is, is that, you know, we're not funded for stuff like this. This would have to come out of surplus dollars. And I'm not saying it's not important, but what are we not going to fund to make this a reality? Bottom line, more work is needed in this area for sure.
1: I think an audit in that area would be quite interesting to understand what the current situation is. And what it could look like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Trisha, thank you for answering all of our questions. We've covered an awful lot of ground here. I feel like we could keep going for a few hours. There's so many things <laughs> we haven't even touched on yet. Uh, but I do want to give you an opportunity to plug something if you like, or, or even to bring up an issue related to education that you don't think is getting the attention that it should. Anything come to mind mm. that you want to leave our listeners with?
2: Yeah, that's a kind question. Thank you. And it's, I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's, it's great to talk to, um, you know, the both of you who clearly, you know, are invested in talking about education. And it's great. It's great to be in your podcast and to talk about some of the issues that uh, myself and the board care so much about. The one thing I would flag is we have right now, and I'm going to try to jazz this up as much as possible. um, It's a survey. And I know some people really like doing surveys. And some people think, ah, whatever but this one's really important every year we do a division feedback survey this one will take about 10-15 minutes to do and I'm highlighting it because there are two really key sections that I want to draw parents and families and staff and students attention to the first one is the idea of an inclusive calendar this idea that um, we need to do better in terms of celebrating and honoring Um, Some more interfaith holidays in our calendar, part of our anti-racism strategy at Edmonton Public Schools. So that's the first one. The second one is around our strategic plan, which really does set the vision and the direction for Edmonton Public Schools. There's a bit in there about climate change. So yeah. Check out check out the survey. It's on epsb.ca. It's also on School Zone. So two things that I think we need to hear feedback from our parents and our families and our students and staff on. And um, so that survey is available until April 29th.
0: We will have that link in the show notes as well. So anyone can just click there if they want. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was uh, a joy talking to you. Uh, you can pretend that it was a joy until after the episode and then
2: you know uh, <laughs> No, it was a joy. It. <laughs> it's it's really good. And you know, we had so much to talk about. And um I'd love to come back on and talk more about the intersection of Edmonton Public and the city plan because I think there's lots to dig into and uncover on that one too. So yeah, great great to be on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Speaking municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and with Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters, just like us. And this episode, the Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a Pod Power shout out to Overdue Finds, the Edmonton Public Library podcast. Bryce Cretenden and Caroline Land host conversations about books, movies, music, pop culture, and other interesting news about Edmonton. It's a great way to learn more about what's happening at EPL and how you can use your library card to access all of EPL's in-person and online services. To listen and find out more about Overdue fines, you can head over to epl.ca slash podcast. Mac, I don't know if you saw, but the Milner branch downtown has like a commercial kitchen that you can just use and they're teaching classes in. You could be like the members of the Bon Appetit test kitchen and film (laughs) YouTube videos in there. (laughs) Living the dream, uh, obviously without the, you know, racism. <laughs> yes, the our brand is the best. Three listeners of our podcast who are also Bon Appetit fans will get that joke and they'll appreciate it. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Trisha. And we're Speaking, speaking municipally. municipally.
2: Speaking <laughs> Municipally.
0: Nailed can it. Can we do that last yeah. one yeah, again? No, can. we
2: did not nail it. I did not <laughs> nail it. <laughs> can
0: we can do it
1: one more time. And we're Speaking Municipally. municipally.